Nuclear non-proliferation. You know, part of that is just there are so many unanswered questions about what the Chinese are doing with their nuclear program, why, kind of what the intentions are. Infantry fighting vehicles. And with its 25-millimeter gun trained on a column of militia, the militia were well-behaved. Floods in Pakistan. And this was the first time that Pakistan Navy was also deployed in addition to using the helicopters of Pakistan Army. The federal budget and defence. The last two budgets have underestimated inflation, so I wouldn't you know, bank on this year's budget being correct on the trajectory of inflation. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, Moscow claims that Kiev is planning to use a dirty bomb. Allegations that the US, UK and French foreign ministers have condemned as transparently false. Given the renewed focus on nuclear threats, Alex Bristow speaks to Kelsey Hartigan about progress on non-proliferation issues, risk reduction, and the links between integrated deterrence and non-proliferation. Hi, Kelsey. Uh, welcome to Aspie. We're discussing non-proliferation today, so there's lots to get across, so I'll jump straight in. It seems like a bit of a cliche to start a discussion on non-proliferation by referring to the uh, doomsday clock, but I just can't help myself. So the atomic scientist's doomsday clock is, I think, the closest to midnight or Armageddon it's ever been. And it's been 100 seconds to midnight, I think, for the last couple of years. I mean, with all these challenges that we we face today and the threat of nuclear war, what is the hope for non-proliferation? Well, Alex, thanks for having me. It's really great to be here and and looking forward to the discussion. Uh, And I think you're right to start here because I think we are in a really, a really dangerous moment. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, the, the prospects of nuclear threats have suddenly kind of resurfaced in a very, in a very real way, given what we've, what we've seen with uh, the Russians and, and the invasion of Ukraine and the kind of the constant threat of nuclear war. And so I think that that, um, again, has kind of crystallized for, for a lot of people, the, the seriousness of, of the moment. And so I think in terms of making progress on nonproliferation issues, I think the, the silver lining really Really is that again? I think the kind of collective public has has kind of returned to thinking about these issues in a, in a much more serious way. And so, you know, I think we're now seventy seven years um, from the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so, I think you're again kind of starting to to see the um, uh, the lot of that the, the public kind of fear come back up in a really concrete way. And and so, really kind of being serious about about these issues and what can we actually do about them, I think is something that is is suddenly kind of, like I said, back at the, the forefront of things. Uh, I think a, a generation of Australian officials are having to rediscover some of the language of the Cold War around these issues, the distinctions between arms control, between counter-proliferation and non-proliferation, what is risk reduction. I mean, I'm talking to Ian Biggs, I think, just after he'd come back from the MPT Revcon review conference, sorry, in, in New York. And it seems like actually there's a tremendous amount going on across these these areas of work. And we tend to get distracted on one or two issues, but are there any silver linings? Are there any things that, w- that progress is being made on in any of those areas? You know, you mentioned risk reduction. And I think, again, because of, because of the moment that we're in, I think there is kind of a renewed focus on 
how can you, particularly in a crisis situation, have some sort of mechanisms for communicating, whether that's through hotlines, whether or not kind of notification systems, whatever that might be. Those are often some of the things that when we think about kind of a risk reduction agenda kind of come to the, the forefront. But I think for me, one, one other important piece of that is, as you said, getting senior leaders and decision makers kind of back into thinking through the seriousness of this, but also in a crisis, really kind of understanding ahead of time what sort of questions that they would want answered, what, you know, what decisions are they going to be asked to make? And really, again, kind of thinking through that, that kind of crisis management piece of it. I, to me, that's definitely a priority. I think related to that, but separate can be, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a saying of risk reduction is arms control. And I think that sometimes causes confusion because arms control for a lot of people can be associated with an actual reduction in arms arsenals and it becomes a question about numbers. And that is an important part of it, but it doesn't have to be kind of focused solely on kind of going going down in numbers. I think there are some, again, kind of basic risk reduction elements to that that are really important. So I would, again, kind of put that at the, the forefront of, of things. But to your point, again, there's, there's a broader set of nonproliferation issues too. We don't have to look any further than Iran, North Korea. You know, again, there are kind of a host of other issues that are, that are still very much much playing out as well. So I think there's kind of a, a very full agenda, if you will. Absolutely. And I, I should have said for our listeners that Ian Biggs is uh, Australia's counterproliferation ambassador. And he was, the discussion was, I think, at the UN Association, he had put it on when he returned from New York. And one of the things that Ian was touching on was the breadth of work. Um, I know that Australia, for example, is a co-founder of the non-proliferation and disarmament initiative with Japan. I think those two countries, for example, have have quite an active agenda in this space that largely goes unnoticed. Because we have touched on the review conference in September in New York, I wondered if we we might just sort of dig a little bit at what drew attention to the international community there. Quite a lot of attention, I think, on Russia's conduct, both its use of nuclear threats and the way that it is holding the Zaporizhia nuclear power station hostage, but also a lot of attention on Australia, the AUKUS agreement, as far as I could tell, the dog that didn't really bark was was China's nuclear buildup. I, I mean, the intelligence community in the United States, I think, has been publicly said, I think, that China is is rapidly expanding the number of, of warheads that it has and the number of missiles it's deploying. But you have to look, dig quite hard to, to, to find a detail. Should we be concerned about what China is doing? And is it in any way violating its responsibilities under the NPT? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is definitely a a significant area of concern. And I think, you know, part of that is just there are so many unanswered questions about what the Chinese are doing with their nuclear program, why kind of what the intentions are, along with the, uh, as you said, the intelligence estimates that you're now starting to see a little bit more of in terms of projected growth, which, by the way, far exceeds what the intel community had previously assessed. And so I think, again, that's there's kind of the numbers piece of it, but there's also the doctrinal piece. And that's, again, leading to a lot of questions about whether China is moving away from its no forced use policy. And again, just to kind of bring it back to the moment that we're in, when you start to see tensions over Taiwan and again, kind of those those moments of tension, that is where that, that kind of question of what is the approach and what is the policy and the doctrine related to, to nuclear use, that's where that starts to become very, very real. So I think there's definitely a lot of unanswered questions, and it is absolutely an area of concern. And so I think you're right. 
I would actually say that the Chinese really, in terms of some of the disinformation that they were really kind of focused on at the MPT review conference, as you said, related to AUKUS, I think that this did in in some ways kind of squeak below below the radar, but um, I think it is absolutely a concern for the for the broader international community. And I think that, you know, I hope that will continue to be be a focus going forward. I guess obviously the, the treaty itself, the non-proliferation treaty, at the heart of this regime of, of non-proliferation work, it does allow for countries, including China, those five countries who are nuclear weapon states and are entitled to to own nuclear weapons, but there are obligations on them, aren't there, to be transparent about what they're uh, they're doing with their nuclear weapons and to ostensibly, I think they're supposed to reduce them over time. I mean, who are the who are the worst performers on, on, on that at the moment? Yeah, I, I mean, I will say I think the nuclear weapon states under the MPT certainly there's a lot of room for progress, if you will, on on their disarmament commitments. Um, so, and I think that that's. That is kind of true across the board, um, but I think you know again with with the growth as you mentioned earlier that we're seeing from from the Chinese and a longstanding reluctance to come to the table to really seriously engage in any conversation about an arms control or even kind of near term reductions in terms of being able to make progress on disarmament commitments. If you can't even have that dialogue, uh, it's really hard to kind of see that that path forward. So it is definitely, again, a broader ongoing concern. But I think you're going to have to figure out at some point a way to, to start to deal with that in a, in a much more concrete way. So an appeal to the international community that if you're Wondering why China is building so many nuclear weapons and all these new delivery platforms, perhaps we should ask them. They do have a, an obligation to to be more transparent in their being. <laughs> That's right. We were talking a little bit about doctrine there, and of course, Chinese doctrine, what they intend to do with their nuclear weapons is is very obscure. I, th- I think my reading is that the, the US is perhaps the most open about its nuclear doctrine of those nuclear weapon states. We've recently had a national security strategy published in the US. I think at the time we're recording this this podcast, we're expecting a, a national defense strategy to be published fairly soon and other parts of the picture, the a nuclear posture review and the review on ballistic missile defense also coming down the pipe probably fairly soon. Amongst all this, there seems to be this term coming to the fore of integrated deterrence. What does this mean for non-proliferation? Is there a link between integrated deterrence and non-proliferation? Yes, so we have all been uh, waiting, maybe not so patiently, for uh, for the unclassified version, as you said, of the national defense strategy. But along with that, the nuclear posture review, and you know, as as you know, certainly within the Washington community, integrated deterrence has very much become kind of the the buzzword and the catchphrase that everyone tends to use. And you know, some. Some of the the questions that have come up around that, though, if you look at the way that Secretary Austin and the department has kind of framed what integrated deterrence is, it's very much focused on the integration piece and less about who and what we're trying to deter. So I think that there, you know, there's... We're, we're hoping when we get the NDS and the NPR that we'll start to see a little bit more detail about how they're in, envisioning this concept, um, kind of what that would look like in practice for the department. But there still are definitely a lot of unanswered questions there. For the connection on the nuclear side, you know, I would say, you know, nuclear you know, deterrence used to be just synonymous with nuclear deterrence. And so I think the one area where I think hopefully there's there's room for progress and this kind of concept can can advance the ball forward is used to be 
again, this kind of concept of a nuclear strike would be returned with a nuclear strike. That was well understood. And so you would arrive at this kind of point of mutually assured destruction that provided some sense of kind of high stakes stability, if you will. And now, again, as we're, we've been reminded, nuclear threats or the whether it be a, a low-yield nuclear weapon, the potential use of that, how that might play out in a conventional conflict really kind of changes the way that we've thought about what that kind of deterrence piece might look like. And so, again, I think when we have to start thinking about how you would deter something that's, you know, a lower-level yield like that, you need to be able to kind of integrate across strategic and conventional forces in a way that I think we're we're pre-programmed to not want to do that. And again, often for good good reason, there's concern about whether that starts to kind of lower the threshold for use. But I think, again, in order to be able to kind of more effectively deter, you've got to be able to, I hate to use this term, better integrate <laughs> across uh, across some of those those domains and capabilities. And so I think if that allows you to kind of move move the ball forward, I think that that's going to be important going forward. Some horrible scenarios that we have to suddenly consider, don't we, with these, the potential right. use of these so-called battlefield or tactical nuclear weapons in places like Ukraine and how will we respond? I mean, I won't go into the debate about whether there really is such a thing as a tactical that's nuclear right. weapon. That's or exactly if it's, right. They, yeah. they seem like a strategic game changer, as I think other people have said before, but we're in Australia, a country which uh, I would say is covered by extended deterrence and ex- expectation that the US would in some circumstances use its nuclear arsenal to defend Australia. We're in a region where I think Japan and South Korea definitely expect that. And it's just quite explicit in public statements that, that are made jointly between those countries and, and the US. What is happening in, in this space in extended deterrence? Is there um, Are US allies in the region content with US posture and, and doctrine? And is there a proliferation risk if there's a the credibility of extended deterrence is damaged? So across the board, I would say, again, our extended deterrence commitments, that is definitely true for allies both in this region, but we also have to, again, think of our NATO allies as well. And so how we kind of tailor deterrence and tailor discussions with our allies about what that would mean in practice, it's definitely a really important area and essential to your point that we get right, because that is part of what is underpinning that commitment is also a commitment from our allies that they would not pursue their own nuclear weapons program. And so that is, again, a very important nonproliferation piece of this. But I think what that means in practice is that we have to have very direct and serious conversations with our allies about what would that look like in practice and how do we assure our allies that the U.S. would would respond and and that, again, kind of understand in practice kind of who would who would be doing what, what does that look like? Those are really tough conversations to have, but they're also really important. And so I think the the Biden administration has restarted extended deterrence dialogues with Japan and South Korea in particular, which I think definitely overdue and is is a really important kind of step forward. But I think, again, given the the seriousness of the threat landscape, being able to to really kind of dig into some of those issues and make sure that that we are completely on the same page with our closest allies uh, is really, really important. And so making sure that those avenues for dialogue uh, continue and, and deepen going forward, I think will be really important. Fascinating. I wonder if there is a plan somewhere in Canberra to try to start an extended deterrence dialogue between Australia and, and the US. Uh, you, you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the idea if it hasn't already occurred to them. But it, I, mean, I, I think... For me, the big point is if, like me, you want to see a world with fewer 
nuclear weapons ideally, but still a secure world, then actually U.S. extended deterrence is, is an important part of that, at least for the foreseeable future. It, it, I think it's a linchpin of, of, of non-proliferation. We, exactly right. yep. we've, we've managed to go most of this discussion. I think we've only mentioned AUKUS once. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. <laughs> maybe the last question can be about AUKUS. So the non-proliferation aspects of AUKUS, the, the nuclear-powered submarines component of AUKUS at least, has received a lot of international attention. As we said, Australia has made a, a point of principle of engaging the IAEA, including inviting the Director General here, to explain how it is managing those proliferation risks and, and to make sure there's going to be a, a robust safeguards regime, a verifiable one, that not only means that there's no risk of Australia having a clandestine nuclear weapons capability. I'm confident Australia doesn't want that, but it needs to be seen that it, there's a verifiable process to ensure it can't have one. But not only is it about Australia, of course, this is setting a standard for other countries. That said, there are many people who believe there are, there are real concerns that this is going to damage the non-proliferation regime. But where do you sit in this debate? Do you think the risks are legitimate or are they overblown? So I think it's important to say at the outset, I am not concerned about Australia using a nuclear naval propulsion program as a cover for a nuclear weapons program. I'm just not concerned about that. I do think it's very important, as you said, to set a high standard, um, the highest standard for other countries that might want to pursue a similar program and to make sure that they're is a robust safeguards process in place to be able to verify that nuclear material that would be in a, in a naval propulsion program is either not diverted or, again, um, as you said, that there are no undeclared facilities. And so that's being able to come up with a safeguards um, arrangement for being able to actually verify that. I think that is going to be a challenge for the IEA. The IEA has not done that previously. So I do think that it is going to be something that getting those details right will will matter. But again, I'm, I think that's more about the precedent that's being set and not a proliferation risk in any way on the Australian side. Thanks very much. I think that's probably all we've got time for. We, we could keep going, but we should probably wind it up there. Thanks so much for the conversation. This was great. The Landfall 100 Phase 3 project and the suitability of infantry fighting vehicles to the ADF's future needs are hotly contested. Marcus Hellyer speaks to Dr. Albert Palazzo about the ADF's proposed acquisition of the vehicles and whether the scenarios in which they might be deployed merit such an expensive purchase. This is something Dr. Palazzo expands on in his recent ASPE report, Deciding the Future. There's a link in your episode notes. Hello everybody out there in Aspie land. I'm here with Al Palazzo, the author of a new report called Deciding the Future, the Australian Army and the infantry fighting vehicle. So congratulations, Al, on this new report that came out last week. And also congratulations for being a braver man than I, because I was thinking about writing a report on Defence's Land 400 Phase 3 program, and I was like, I just don't want to go there. So I handed it to you, and you picked it up and have run with it. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you, Marcus, for having me, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, you know, write this report. Now, this has been quite a controversial project and a controversial capability. I think many people out there in Aspie listener land would you know, be aware of what this capability is and the sort of prolonged circular debates around armour in the Australian Army. This, this project was sort of meant to be a kind of explainer, to just sort of get some information out there about what is this capability for and how will we use it. So 
I've got some questions here. Maybe we can unpack those issues. So the first question is, what are they for? Well, I, I can answer that quite directly and perhaps ab- abruptly, but what are they for? They're for waging war. Right? That's why these vehicles exist. That's why other countries employ them and have them. And if Australia is to wage war with any prospect of success in the modern context, they have to have these vehicles. Presumably land war, though. Well, is there such a thing as land war? Why do we have to separate you know, the different domains? Mm-hmm. These domains today overlap to a very great extent. And as I've written elsewhere, there's actually quite a blurring between the domains as long-range strike you know, takes a hold and long-range censoring. So when we talk about war, I prefer to speak of it as a, as a cohesive, unified activity as opposed to trying to break it down into specific sets. Now, these are obviously land vehicles, but at their heart, they also have capabilities that will allow them to fit within the wider Australian Defence Force operation. So, they belong to Army, but they have particular capabilities that will allow them to fight, to play a role in a theatre-wide fight. So, let's not talk about just land warfare. We need to talk about war. Well, why don't you give us some examples then of the kinds of operations where you think they could be successfully employed and make a significant difference to the outcome of the operation? Well, let's say, for example, a unnamed great power decides to exert its influence in the waters to our north, in those archipelagic states. And Australia is invited in, and we have some obligations here under the Five Powers Defence Act, which is still active, to Malaysia and Singapore to come in and provide assistance. And Australia could, if the government so decides, deploy land forces. And these land forces would be what they call a combined arms team, which would include not only just tanks, artillery and infantry and and hopefully we'll have the HIMARS missile system by then. And the goal of this could be to intercept activities or or enemy actions in the maritime space. That's the whole point, one of the points behind HIMARS. But this deployment, this, you know, if we were to send a battery of HIMARS, you just can't send that because the enemy, who is a thinking being, will simply eliminate it by, you know, sending a you know, parachuting a company of their own infantry on top of it. So you need to set up a defensive bubble around it, both against landward attack, air attack. This bubble would have to include you know, counter-air um, you know, defenses and also defenses against ground assault. So the IFE would play an integral part in that. And because of the IFE's communications abilities, it then would also allow this land element to communicate with ships of the RAN and also assets of the RAF. So that would be one example. What about the claim that it's kind of overkill for a kind of stabilisation or counterinsurgency operation in our near region? Well, you know, one of the key takeaways from East Timor, the East Timor intervention, was you know, General Cosgrove has as his largest armoured platform a few you know, Aslavs, which are now you know, obsolete. Couldn't really deploy them with any degree of success on a modern battlefield. 
But these were bigger and badder than anything the local militias had. And so we would put an Aslav in overwatch position on a you know, checkpoint, and with its 25-millimeter gun trained on a column of militia, the militia were well-behaved. So in a, let's say, a climate change-induced breakdown of societies in our near region, okay, in which these destabilizing societies, having something that's really powerful plays a function because it makes the other side stand up and take notice and behave. And so Australia will be able to exert its authority with these vehicles in environments that perhaps are look you know, very chaotic and in which there might be rogue gangs and militias or even um, members of a local nation's armed forces who have gone rogue. And they might have heavy weapons with them too. So the, the idea that it's overmatch is, is really a fallacy. And the other reason why it's a fallacy is, is because so many of the... Well, you're sort of arguing overmatch is what you want. Oh, you absolutely do. You do want overmatch because nobody wants to bring a knife to a gunfight. Okay? You, know, you want to be the guy with the gun. And so these vehicles are powerful and strong and carry very powerful weapons. And so that's what you want in any of these kinds of regional encounters. Mm. Now, the question is, is, well, you've got to get to the fight first. So how do you get them to the fight? Yeah, and this, of course, is going to be a problem. Deploying overseas is always a problem for everybody. I mean, you know, just an example here. When the United States deployed to uh, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia for the first Gulf War, it took three months to get their force there. And the United States has you know, huge quantities of strategic lift. It takes time. Now, Australia doesn't have huge quantities of strategic lift. It doesn't actually have enough. Now, there are ways, there are what you call workarounds to do this. You can you know, go into the marketplace and rent a ship, which we did for the East Timor intervention, which we did in Vietnam, which we did in Iraq. It's not uncommon. You could rely on the assets of a foreign power, such as the United States, and ask them to provide additional lift. We've hired lift, most recently seen when we flew Bushmasters to the Ukraine on Ukrainian Antonovs. Uh, so what, we can hire, other, hire those. What if the other side is shooting back? Because all of those examples you cite, the, the yes, other side wasn't, wasn't shooting, shooting back. back. What happens if they try and sink the ships? Well... The, this is one of the, I would say, areas of gap in the Australian Defence Force. We do not have very strong power projection into a contested environment. And these environments are getting more and more contested as time goes by. And so you have a, you know, several options here. One is you know, the government has to accede to a greater degree of risk and you then take that risk if the objective is important enough, you may want to take that risk, or you don't go directly into the contested environment, but you transport to a somewhat safer location, and then you revert to either land travel or smaller movements in coastal transport. But what we ultimately will need is the ability to create some kind of bubble 
some anti-access bubble that is transportable over our forward deployed forces. And that applies to you once they do get ashore. They're going to still need this degree of protection above them because a lot of the hostile stuff is going to be coming through the air and we need to either deflect or shoot it down. Mm-hmm. So what you seem to be coming back to in a lot of these answers is the ADF is a system. There are many parts to this system. The IFEs will be a key part of the system, but only one part. Yes. And some of the other parts uh, are missing or we don't have them in sufficient quantity. So if it were up to Al to go out and buy more stuff. What are the key parts of the system that are missing that you think we need to enhance in order to be able to use, you know, the IFV properly yeah. and conduct yeah. land-based combined arms warfare properly? And, and I would add, in a joint setting. Yeah. Well, some of the things are on way, such as the HIMARS, and we've seen how... Sorry, could you explain HIMARS to people who don't necessarily live and breathe defence acronyms? <laughs> well, let's just call it a truck-borne missile launcher that can fire a missile... Well, it depends on the missile. But they can go out to, you know, the ones Australia is planning to get, something like 300 to 500 kilometres, and then you can go further with the different kinds of missiles. And they've been used very effectively by Ukraine, and in some ways you could say they've turned the tide of the war in Ukraine. Yes, you know, we're seeing Ukrainian forces being able to inflict significant pain on Russian forces with this platform. It's not the only platform because, you know, it's just one aspect of it. Right. So Australia is buying HIMARS. We're That's... buying HIMARS, but we're buying them in trivial numbers. So, yeah, and, and John Blacksland has used the phrase, you know, uh, the ADF is a boutique force. Uh, this applies to what we're getting in HIMARS. We should be getting three, four times the number that we're getting because there just isn't enough. And you need to be able to mass effects. And when you have just a boutique number, you know, it, you know, it, it, it looks nice and it's on your orbit. It makes you feel modern, but it doesn't make you as lethal as you should be. And so HIMARS is coming absolutely essential. But there's still other remaining gaps here. And, you know, one of the most glaring gaps, and, and it, it is astonishing that this hasn't been, you know, taken care of yet, is armed drones. And again, something else we've been seeing in Azerbaijan, in Israel, and in Ukraine, of course, is that armed drones, you know, and just tactical ones have a very important role to play. And we don't even have a program in place to buy them. And this is just absurd at this point. I mean, we should just, you know, be able not take five years or ten years to get them some you know, generals should go to, to manufacture, and there are Australian companies that manufacture mm. these, and, you know, whip out their platinum you know, credit card and just buy them and then figure out how to maintain them, to man them, you know, later and just start letting the, you know, the troops play with them. And these exist for the maritime space too. So, they, you know, a patrol boat should be able to launch a drone that will massively extend the range of the effects that this rather small platform can achieve and create lethality at some distance. That, and that, that seems to be, when you talk to people in the army advocating the IFV, they do seem to suggest that at, at some point the IFV will be a kind of mothership for 
on crude systems and drones yeah. and things like that. Is that your understanding of, yes, of where it, we'll be at some it, point? It could, you know, depending on how they develop it, you know, that would be one of the trajectories where you would go. And that, you know, IFE becomes, you know, if you want to call it a mothership, but it becomes the control platform for a host of uncrewed robotic you know, systems that are you know, out there inflicting hurt upon an opponent. Okay, well, that's all I've got. But one question I've sort of asked, and I've just finished writing a strategist piece on this. If it's so important, why has it taken so long to get it? And in fact, the government hasn't yet agreed to it. I suspect they will agree to it in some numbers, maybe not the 450 that the Army wants. But we've known that the M113, the old armoured personnel carrier, has been, o- has, has been obsolete for decades. Yes. So why have we lived with this gap? How is it that Defence and Army haven't been able to kind of win over government and, and present a business case that you know, the government will sign up to? Well, I'm going to give an answer that's very much at the strategic level. I'm not going to focus on the bureaucracy or the culture, or, uh, you know, the strategic level. And I think the answer is that, you know, the American alliance has lots of wonderful things. It's been an essential benefit to Australia. But at the same time, having that alliance has a number of negative factors involved in it. And one of those negative factors is that our political leaders and even our senior military leaders don't really have to take war terribly seriously because there's always the Americans to handle any of the really nasty stuff. Now, unfortunately, the world situation is changing. It's becoming a much more dangerous place out there. Weapons are proliferating to much lower levels who could never operate them before. And we're getting caught here with a ethos or a mentalité that says, you know, don't worry about it, it's not serious, coming up against an environment that's getting increasingly serious. And I think until our political leaders accept that war is an increasingly likely scenario... And, and not just in some throwaway line, but it really is at its heart, and that the world is much more dangerous, and we have to get serious, and we have to stop being, again, using Blacksland, the boutique force. We become a military, an ADF, and an army that is capable of conducting real war against really dangerous people. All right, one, one quick final one. What do you think will uh, come out of the Defence Strategic Review on this? Do you think they'll recommend the government go all in? Will we get the, the whole 450? Will it be a smaller number or will it be none at all? What? Well, you don't want to go there. Well, no, I'll, I'll be brave. You said brave and, and perhaps uh, the real word is you know, courageous in that yes minister sense. Um, I, in my heart, I, I think you know, 450 is probably too few. We should be getting more. But I also suspect that the, you know, the realities of budgets is going to be imposing itself. And we have that idea about getting nuclear-powered submarines that is simply going to rip the heart out of every other project, you know, that every project out there. And I'm including you know, Hunter-class frigates in that and the B-21 prospect. Right? It's going to consume the defense budget. 
and you know, if we continue to go down this road, and, and I'm not in favor of the nuclear-powered submarine. I think it's a daft idea, but that's perhaps uh, a <laughs> question will, for a different that, that's another conversation. conversation. But it's going to consume the budget. And unless the government is willing to pump more money into defense in large numbers, we're going to end up being a defense force that has one platform and a boutique everything else. Well, the old saying was, you know, in years gone by when Australia was contemplating nuclear submarines, the line was always, you can have nuclear submarines or you can have a navy. You're kind of saying you can have nuclear submarines or you can have an army. So. Well, and an Air Force and a Navy, you know, it'll, it's going to hurt everybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll, we'll save my opposition to, the, you know, <laughs> to a different time. All right. Well, we'll do that another day. But congratulations once again, Al Palazzo's new report, Deciding the Future. And I would commend everybody out there in Aspieland to go to our homepage and you'll see it sitting there and download a copy. And it's a, a pretty quick and very enjoyable read. So thank you once again, Al. All right, and thank you, Marcus, for having me. Pakistan recently experienced its worst floods on record, with over 9 million people displaced and over 2 million homes destroyed. Will Lieben speaks to Pakistan's High Commissioner, Zahid Hafiz Chowdhury, about the impacts and long-term threats of climate change for Pakistan, the role of the military in disaster response, and the prospect for climate compensation. Good morning, Your Excellency. I'm here for listeners with His Excellency High Commissioner from Pakistan, Mr Zahid Chowdhury. And thankful for the opportunity to to discuss, I suppose, what are quite unfortunate events recently in your country and some pretty spectacular disaster impacts and a broader discussion around climate change as a contributor to that. Thank you very much, William. Good morning. And thank you for having me. As you must have seen what has happened in Pakistan, it's quite devastating, the impact of climate change in Pakistan and then the resulting floods, flash floods, and then in terms of the impact of flood, just to give you an idea, over 33 million people got impacted in Pakistan. That is more than the total population of this country. And then one third of the country was under water that is larger than the area of Britain. And then there was loss of lives, livelihood and infrastructure damage. As well, we lost 1,707 precious lives. 13,000 people got injured. In terms of infrastructure damage, 13,000 kilometers of road and 435 bridges were washed away. 2 million homes got damaged, 1.2 million livestock got perished and the economic losses that we've had are estimated at over $32 billion. The government of Pakistan deployed all available resources at its disposal and we were able to save many precious lives due to timely intervention by the government of Pakistan. We moved millions of people to safer locations, saved thousands of lives and then also currently we are in the relief phase. We are providing food to the impacted people, medical facilities to them and then temporary shelter to them. We are also grateful to the international community for their solidarity with Pakistan, friendly countries, including Australia. But let me also say all international humanitarian organizations came forward. United Nations agencies came forward. Most importantly, 
the pakistani non governmental organizations civil society the people of pakistan they came forward to help those who needed their help and like always pakistani diaspora they've been also of tremendous help as always i think you know, the figures that you you cited up the top there are clearly incredibly tragic and i mean i think those comparison points are really important because the scale of this disaster i think can be very difficult for people to grasp from any distance internationally but particularly from a country like australia where the population scale and geographic scale of this kind of event is something that's unfamiliar even having had our own significant experiences of these climate affected disasters like bushfires by this point i think maybe something else worth emphasizing for the audiences also the second and third order effects which the country now faces as a result of these floods as you would be well aware of things like health impacts and waterborne diseases upticks in malaria and dengue challenges with crop seeding because of silted country and so on so so these impacts are going to be something that the country obviously has to deal with for some time yet quite aside from the immediate recovery yes william as i mentioned earlier we are currently in the relief phase rescues over but many challenges lie ahead as we enter into the long term rehabilitation phase that would be a long haul undertaking at the same time during such calamities disease is always the next predator and as you also mentioned we are facing the challenge of many diseases like malaria diarrhea and other diseases so that's a challenge that we are faced with and in terms of our food security also as per the united nations figures international food organization figures 9.4 million acres of agriculture land has been inundated in pakistan and that would certainly have serious implications for the food security in pakistan yeah one interesting aspect of the the immediate response that i think is striking particularly to certain australian observers and, and given my own interests i suppose is how prominent the role of the pakistani military has been in facilitating some of that immediate response and this reflects trends that we're seeing across the world at the moment with the increasing frequency and scale of these disasters with governments having their capacity stretched and using whatever tools are there at disposal and I'd be interested in any reflections you have on you know how the pakistani military might think about this whether this is something they increasingly already prepare for Yeah no thank you very much William for asking this questions it is natural that during such disasters and at this scale the governments tend to deploy all available resources at their disposal and in Pakistan we have a well trained army known for its professionalism so during the disaster they are always at the forefront especially in the relief and rescue phase of such disasters given the infrastructure damage in Pakistan it was very difficult to reach out to the affected people and then also to relocate them to safer places and then to provide them with food temporary shelter medicines and all of that so it required a major effort pakistan armed forces army navy and air force they worked alongside the civil administration in pakistan and this was the first time that pakistan navy was also deployed in addition to using the helicopters of pakistan army and air force to relocate people and then also to deliver food medicine and everything we for the first time used navy hovercrafts also and then navy diving teams navy boats in difficult circumstances including at night also 
and i must say that due to timely intervention by the government by the civil administration by the armed forces of pakistan thousands of lives were saved and then millions of people were moved to safer locations and i'd i'd like to turn now to a different aspect of the response and part of the international community's role in helping pakistan from this point forward um, and that's the issue of you know, how debt is dealt with at this point as well as direct compensation and aid for response all the interrelated financial aspects that are now particularly prominent we've got a couple of milestones coming up internationally where this is going to be foremost in a lot of people's mind in the first instance the cop in egypt next month as well as a donor conference which i understand is penciled into occur in paris in november also specifically on the flood challenge in your country might you just tell us a little bit about what your prime minister and government has said about this and what pakistan is looking for from an aid and loan perspective sure. both both in regards to the the flood specifically and the the longer and broader challenges that this poses financially for the country yes yeah, sure william when it comes to climate change unfortunately pakistan is at the receiving end we believe that nature has unleashed its fury on pakistan without actually looking at pakistan's carbon footprint if we look at the co2 emissions between 1850 and 2020 due to consumption of fossil fuels 1.69 trillion tons of co2 emissions were there and then 25% of that is attributable to the united states and 59% to other industrialized countries and pakistan's contribution is only 0.3% whereas we are 3% around 3% of world population so yes pakistan has been deeply impacted and then in terms of global greenhouse gas emissions also our contribution is less than 1% but still we are amongst the countries the list of countries which are most vulnerable to extreme weathers due to climate change so yes we will be sharing our perspective we'll be sharing all these at cop 27 in sharmal sheikh next month our delegation will be led by the prime minister and we'll be also raising the issue of the global goal of containing the temperature to less than 1.5% and we'll also be talking about loss and damage issue and then climate finance issue and we'll also be talking about the issue of climate justice as the secretary general of the united nations mr antonio gutierrez while he was in pakistan after these devastating floods as he also mentioned that it's a question of climate justice not only question of solidarity with pakistan so yes the global south should not suffer and then the global north needs to come forward to help them in mitigating the damages that they are facing and then also in terms of climate action yes everyone has an extremely important role to play and i must say that our actions today will not only decide our future but also the future of coming generations yeah absolutely and i think it goes to the scale of this disaster and the disparity between that and pakistan's current and historical contributions to the emissions problem that the climate justice component of what's happened in recent months in your country has been such an inescapable part of the discussion i think it's also been interesting watching from afar your prime minister and government attempt to i suppose to to put it a little bit bluntly thread a, a delicate 
needle or, or walk the line in terms of speaking quite frankly about the moral obligation on the global north and, and wealthy countries given that, that disparity while at the same time avoiding language around things like reparations and, and trying to be forward-looking and emphasising that the country's preference is is for large-scale loans to help rebuild and build resiliently rather than that perhaps more diplomatically difficult language around things like reparations. You know what we see is that climate change, it's not a challenge anymore. It's an existential threat. It's an imminent threat. And we are all responsible for that to varying degrees. And then we are also victim to this today. It's Pakistan tomorrow. Unfortunately, it can be any other country. So it's a challenge challenge that we are all facing together and we have to find the solutions working together. So Pakistan believes in working with the international community, working with friendly countries and working with international organizations. Pakistan on its part, we are a signatory to the Paris Agreement. We were, in fact, one of the first countries that signed the agreement the day it was open for signature. On our part, Pakistan has a very ambitious, but at the same time, very well articulated agenda, climate agenda. We plan to plant over 10 billion trees over the coming years. We plan to convert 30% of our vehicles to electric vehicles by 2030. We plan to have 60% of our electricity coming from renewable sources by the year 2030. We have launched Miyawaki forests in Pakistan to deal with urban heat phenomenon. And we also plan to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by the year 2030. Yes, working with the international community is very important because 15% of our nationally determined contributions can be achieved from our own available resources. But for the remaining 85%, we'll be looking forward to the help by the international community, especially international climate finance mechanisms are very important. Yeah, I think that neatly leads us to the the broader question of some of the long-term challenges, because as you rightly point out, the the depth and longevity of this problem is such that it's going to be with us for for the rest of our lifetimes and our children's lifetimes. So I think that leads us quite naturally to some of the longer term questions posed by these kinds of impacts. The geopolitical impacts of these deep and second and third order impacts of both acute climate disasters and and their chronic impacts are something that is going to increasingly be, be front of mind, though understandably it hasn't been in the immediate aftermath of this disaster. It's true for a lot of countries, but in Pakistan's case, there are obvious potential friction points. For instance, your country has uh, transboundary river basins with India, obviously a key neighbour, as well as any number of other relationships which have a bearing on climate change and climate change adaption for your country. Perhaps we could end with any thoughts you might have on the geopolitical implications of climate change and its impacts for Pakistan. No, you you are right, William. Both India and Pakistan, we are agrarian countries and then we have huge stakes in the discussions taking place and then actions taken with regard to climate change. Both our countries are also concerned about the implications of climate change and then we've seen severe weather and then erratic monsoons, heat waves, all of that impacting the lives and livelihoods in our countries. Our economies are getting impacted and then 
a phenomenon which is particular to parts of Pakistan and India is smog which is a combination of fog and smog so both countries they need to work together to deal with all these challenges there is actually a mechanism available between Pakistan and India in terms of utilization of water treaty a water distribution agreement arranged and negotiated by world bank and the aim of the treaty is to ensure optimal utilization of water by the two countries so we both need to ensure that all provisions of the treaty are fully implemented and then also there is huge scope for both the countries to work together on all other environment related issues is it's extremely important not only for our region but then also in terms of global climate actions as well it is unfortunate that due to disinclination of india there is no discussion taking place on the issue at the moment but we remain hopeful that in future yes this is an area where the two countries need to work together closely oh yeah i think unfortunately we're all looking at a future in the next few decades and beyond where these kind of frictions play into relationships between any number of countries around the world uh, and perhaps that positive note and optimistic note for for improved cooperation is something that we can end on that's all we've got time for thank you so much for your time your excellency uh, thank you for coming in thank you very much for having me this week the albanese government delivered its first federal budget aspis marcus helier explains why the government has kept its defence powder dry in this week's budget, setting the scene for some very difficult decisions in the first half of next year. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm David Rowe. I'm here with Senior Analyst Marcus Hellier to talk about the budget. Marcus, thanks for coming on the program. Anytime. So the budget's being seen very much as a steady-as-she-goes exercise. The government's under budgetary pressure on a range of fronts. There's the NDIS, there's health, there's interest payments promised tax cuts and so forth. Can you just put it in the context for us? Where does defence fit in with all of these other priorities for the government? Well, yes. So this is not the defence budget. This budget is about setting out for the Australian public what a difficult situation Australia is in, and in particular the, the government, which has to meet all of those raising demands. So Yes, the, the Treasurer has been pointing out these five large growing areas of expenditure, so the NDIS, health, ageing population, servicing, growing debt and defence. I think in the long term, defence will be the smallest of those. Certainly the, the growth in those five areas will be smallest in defence probably. So defence is up against some very big challenges. So everybody wants more money. And the government's under a lot of pressure to deliver that. Now, the, the Treasurer did say, well, there's, there's been some help. So there's been a big windfall essentially generated by energy exports. So if you look this year, the expected deficit has come down substantially since the March budget. So that helps this year. But then when you look into the forward estimates over the three years beyond that and then over the decade, there's really no change. So the overall situation is just as severe. And yes, those other areas are growing at a, a great rate. So it's it's not an easy space for uh, Angus Houston and Stephen Smith, who are meant to be working out what the defence force that Australia needs is and telling the government what it's going to cost. There is no 
big pot of cash sitting there just waiting for defence to come in and collect. So the really difficult period is going to be in May when they deliver their next budget after the Defence Strategic Review and the Submarines Task Force have reported. You've written for a while now that without a significant increase in defence spending, Australia probably won't be able to afford all of the new capabilities that we all agree that are required given the strategic environment. So from May onwards, can you just talk a little bit about, I suppose, the the difference between the trajectory that's required and the trajectory that we can realistically get ourselves on? Right. So the Defence Acquisition Program, the Force Structure Plan that came out in 2020, which was really an update on the 2016 White Paper Plan, that already has a pretty ambitious capability program baked into it. So the new frigates, there was going to be the new attack class submarines, lots of armoured vehicles, lots of new capabilities like ballistic missile defence. So there was a lot of stuff already in the plan. My sense was that was already unaffordable against the funding line set out in the 2020 DSU. You know, and I've gone through some of these arguments before. So it's already going to be very challenging. On top of that, we've now had a couple of years of high inflation, which the budget predicts will continue for a couple more years. And I'd note that the last two budgets have underestimated inflation. So I wouldn't you know, bank on this year's budget being correct on the trajectory of inflation. So I think it's prudent to assume it's going to remain high for a while to come. That eats into not just Aussie mums and dads buying power, but it eats into the Defence Department's buying power, particularly since we buy a lot of equipment overseas from the US where inflation is running even hotter than here. So what that means is that Defence was already under a lot of pressure to afford that ambitious capability program, but its buying power is being reduced every year. So I think there's already a significant mismatch there. Then if we look at the DSR, and you know, a lot of people are arguing we need more capability, I would agree with that. So Smith and Houston have to sort of work out what that is. So that's going to need more money. If you want more capability, it costs more money, unless you're willing to make some big cuts to things that are already in the plan. And as we know from defence, that virtually never happens. So anything new coming in will be in addition to stuff that's there already. So... The percentage of GDP that is sort of baked into the plan, well, that sort of changes with GDP prognostications. And I'd note that the percentage of defence spending this year has actually come down quite a lot. It's now up down to about 1.96%. That's not because the defence budget has been cut. That's purely because GDP estimates have gone up. And again, that's been driven by inflation. But the overall trajectory in that 2020 DSU funding line was to get well beyond 2%. Now, would it be 2.2%, 2.3%? Again, depends on your prediction of GDP. But my sense is that even at 22 or 2.3%, that shopping list was probably unaffordable. So if we want significantly new capabilities and we want them quickly, we're probably going to have to go up to 2.5% at least, I would say. So, so when you talk about revisiting the funding line, as you did in your strategist piece for ASPE this week, you're, you're literally talking about that line that has been drawn from 2016 through to 2022 and, and is sort of continuing along the same linear pathway. Mm-hmm. That 
that really needs to change if we're going to do the things we say that we need to yeah, do. Yeah, so the funding line that we have, and in, so, you know, there was some speculation before the budget the other night that there would be a change to that funding line. There has been no change to that funding line. You know, I, I said in my strategist piece, the government's keeping its powder dry, so it's not going to change that until the Defence Strategic Review comes back with, you know, various recommendations. But when you look at that funding line, it came out of the 2016 white paper, which was essentially written in 2015. That funding line has continued on. It was extended by the 2020 Defence Strategic Update, so now it goes out to 2030. So what that really means is the funding line that Defence is working to out to 2030 was created in 2015. You know, and the world was a quite different place in 2015. You know, we didn't quite have the same understanding of China's trajectory, both in its power and its ambition and its willingness to use that power coercively. That funding line does increase, so it's not like it's the same funding line for 15 years. There is there are real increases built into that. The question is, are those increases enough? And I would argue probably not, particularly when we also roll into that, the, the impact of inflation, which is eating away at it. So yes, I do think it's it's long past time to revisit that funding line and essentially update it from the world of 2015 to the world of 2022. You mentioned inflation just talk a little bit about exchange rates. Is that as significant a burden driven by global economic factors? Just talk about how, how serious that is. Look, exchange rates are, are a burden, but they're not really borne by the Department of Defence. They're borne by the broader budget. So, you know, without getting into the technical details, Defence is compensated by the Department of Finance for any loss of buying power due to exchange rates. And that happens automatically. So if the Aussie dollar goes down against the overseas currencies, particularly the the US greenback, we need more Australian dollars to buy the same amount of equipment from overseas. So finance tops up defence. It also works the other way. So if we have a strong Aussie dollar, finance takes money away from defence. Defence can't go, I've got 10% more dollars, so I'll go out and buy 10% more F-35s. It doesn't work that way. And But those swings and roundabouts can be pretty extreme. You know, So defence can be topped up by you know a billion bucks a year or can lose a billion bucks a year just through changes to exchange rates. So that doesn't affect defence, but ultimately it is the Aussie taxpayer who is going to have to pay for a declining Aussie dollar. The difference with inflation is that defence doesn't get any compensation for inflation. It has to eat that, which essentially, you know, over the longer term, has to have an effect on capability. Now, the DSR has, well, the two reviewers, principal reviewers that you mentioned, Stephen Smith and Angus Houston, have been given the instruction to place an emphasis on what can be done over the next 10 years. That's just sort of shorter time frame than a lot of people might be familiar with when it comes to the long-term thinking that's required with defence capability acquisitions. Just explain to us what that reflects, to what extent there is a recognition that really the next few years are critical and those old time frames that we used to think we could rely on no longer apply. Yeah, so things have gotten urgent. 
And that was one of the key judgments of the 2020 Defence Strategic Review that put out by the previous government, but the current government seems to accept those judgments. And so if we go back and look at previous strategic documents like you know white papers, there's always this sort of assumption that we'll, we'll have 10 years of warning time, that somehow we'll figure out that things are getting bad 10 years down the track and we'll take action to do something about it. Well, I mean, I think what we've worked out is that the bad guys did send us a letter 10 years ago saying, get ready, and we just chose to ignore it. So now we're trying to make up for lost ground. This government, to its credit, has directed the DSR to focus on what can be done in the next 10 years, which is a good thing. The, the challenge for Smith & Houston is going to be that a couple of really big things are not on the table for in the kind of trade space. So when I said before, you know, if you want new stuff, you may have to chuck old stuff out, out of the program. Two things are not in that trade space. And they're the two biggest things on the shopping list. So the first one is nuclear-powered submarines. The second one is the Hunter-class frigate. Unfortunately, neither of those programs is going to deliver anything useful in that 10-year time frame. Meanwhile, they will be absorbing billions and billions of dollars as you set up shipyards, complete the design, start production, which will be very slow and inefficient initially. And so we will have spent tens of billions of dollars over the next 10 years on those two programs and gotten nothing in return. Now, that's not to say you should cancel those programs. It's just a kind of opportunity cost that money you can't do anything with in the next 10 years. So their hands are tied a little. So what are the big things they could do? Well, there's been a lot of speculation about the large armoured vehicle project, the infantry fighting vehicles known as Land 400 Phase 3. That's the next big thing on the shopping list. The government hasn't said whether that's in the trade space, but they haven't said it's untouchable. So there's a lot of speculation around, you know, will will that be reduced in, in scope to free up money for other things? What I would say is, you know, we, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that in the decade of the 2020s, projected defence funding is about $575 billion. So it's over half a trillion dollars. So I don't think it's reasonable for defence to say, oh, we can't do anything faster, we can't change the plan. You know, there is a lot of money there that if it is used effectively, in my view, can deliver capability and it can, can be delivered faster. You know, there is a lot of money there. So, you know, I think it's on defence to come up with ways to do stuff faster. Still, I'm kind of glad privately that I'm not in Smith & Houston's shoes, frankly. Um, just quickly, you're, you're known for doing your cost of defence uh, review after each budget. Given that this is a sort of a, a holding budget with the, with the main game still to come, are you, are, will you be doing something like that this time around? Well, we'll do a, a holding cost of defence. So we'll, we'll do a short one. There's, there's really not too much to say at this point. So you know, I'm not going to sit and write 100 pages for people to you know, labour through just, just to do it. There's enough to sort of warrant a short report. We'll do that. But the bottom line is you know, government's keeping its powder dry. There's no real changes to the funding line. There's no changes to the shopping list at this point. We'll have to wait until March when the, the Defence Strategic Review checks back in. We'll look forward to that. Marcus, thanks for joining us. Anytime. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. 
We'll be back with another episode soon.